there's been a lot of disenfranchised people over this last two years who feel like there's nobody speaking for them. They feel like they're living in some strange version of Canada they just don't recognize anymore. And the veneer of civilization is extremely thin. And you can't be messing around with it the way that we have and expect that everything's just going to fall back in place. But all of these things are just are hanging in the balance right now. And, and it could go very, very badly. And I don't think that our professional managerial class recognizes they get their legitimacy from the people that they govern. If they can't respect their rules and stay in their line, the whole thing's just going to fall apart. I don't I don't know where this country goes from here, but uh, it could go it could go very badly. <laughs> I'd like to welcome everyone to Freedom Feature today. My name is Barry Bussey, and with me, I have Lisa Bildy. Lisa is a lawyer who's practicing in London, Ontario. And Lisa, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And I just wonder if you could just explain to our listeners uh, the type of law you've been practicing and what makes you such a strong advocate for freedom? Well, thanks for having me on, Barry. Um, well, I guess I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest version. Uh, I think I, like most of us, arrived at this place through, you know, through, through a fairly long history. The kind of law that I used to do when I first finished law school was trial work. I was a family lawyer and then uh, combined that with personal injury. I did a little bit of criminal at a small hands-on litigation firm here in London. Uh, it was a great experience. I was climbing to the top of the heap, doing some great, uh, I thought, great work, great, great files I was able to work on, very hands-on. I did a, a very significant jury trial when I was about six months pregnant, and I was probably about seven years uh, along in my time with, with that particular firm. Uh, things were kind of going down a normal path, and then I had, a, I had my first child a few months later, and I, I had a little paradigm shift. So I actually stepped out of practice for what was... I mean, in theory, it was going to be three months and I was going to, I, I guess, just stick them under my desk and carry on, but it didn't quite turn out that way. So uh, 17 years later, after homeschooling my children um, and doing a fair bit of, of contract work along the way. So I wasn't entirely out of the practice, but uh, but I wasn't I wasn't actively you know, offering services to the public. Um, but I, I started to decide I hadn't thought of anything better to do besides going back to practicing law after my uh, my eldest got into university and my younger decided to go to public high school. So uh, so I started paying attention more to what was going on in the profession and learned about the law society issue that was just starting to arise at that time, which was a uh, um, basically the law society had decided that it was going to require all licensees to um, to swear a statement of principles that it had decided we should all have, which was to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in the profession. Which uh, so, Jordan Peterson calls "die," I believe. He does, and that's a, it's a perfect acronym. <clears throat> it's a great way to, to kill off an institution. I should say that I did, you know, I got off the hamster wheel of the profession, perhaps when I decided to stay home, and then certainly solidified that with homeschooling. Um, so I was already kind of an out of the box thinker, and had had allowed myself to to develop that way. So, and, and I think also coming back into the profession after a hiatus was kind of like you know, a frog stepping out of the, the gradually boiling water and then st sticking a toe back in and realizing it is, it's come to a boil. So I'd been observing the growing culture war over the years and I had had some uh, things in my personal life that, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of helped me uh, see certain patterns that developed 
long story short, I, I recognized this initiative uh, as something that was quite pernicious and dangerous to our liberal society, small L liberal, in the sense that, you know, it is it, it really isn't for our legal regulator to tell us that we have to have certain principles in order to practice law. I mean, there's a freedom of conscience issue, freedom of, of speech there, because we were effectively compelled to express these, these values um, for the benefit of the, uh, of the regulator or be punished for it. Just explain for our listeners what those regulations required. You mentioned that we had to have a statement of principles. Um, can you just unpack that a little bit? It wasn't just a declaration. It was an activation. So, and the declaration alone was bad enough because compelled speech, as we know, is, is something that uh, at least our Supreme Court used to think was, was something that was inimical to a free society. Uh, being told you have to say something is almost worse than, than not being allowed to speak in the first place. But um, not only were we supposed to put together the statement of principles, but we were to promote these values in all aspects of our lives, uh, whether we were in retirement, uh, in our personal lives, and so on. So we were to go out as foot soldiers for this ideology of basically it's a progressive ideology that uh, promotes these concepts defined by the law society and, and others in that space to mean something actually quite different than what those words would lend themselves to mean for most people who aren't in this space and thinking about these issues all the time. Give us a, just a, a concrete example. We had diversity, inclusion, equality, and so on. So right. how were they going to cause a problem for the members, which you so rightly point out? The, the general principle of the thing is a problem enough, just the idea that, a, that your regulator is there to ensure that basically to protect the public from incompetent or fraudulent lawyers, you know, people who are going to go out and, and cause harm. It really is not their place to be deciding what our values, our collective values are. We don't have collective values. Uh, each of us has come to our personal values through our own life experiences, our own upbringings, our own, perhaps we are guided by religious principles. Perhaps we, um, you know, through the school of hard knocks, we've, we've, we've come to value certain things over other things. So, so that alone was enough of a problem, but the words themselves. So for example, when they say equality, they don't mean that every person is equal under and before the law, uh, which is what I think is something worth fighting for. Absolutely. Um, equity is what they mean. And equity is a very different beast. It's actually, uh, it, it means that we don't value each individual uh, where, they're, where they're at. We expect everyone to end up in the same place and we will push other people down to get everybody to the final uh, place together, whatever that place is. And, uh, uh, you know, so it relies on these, these notions of um, oppression and, um, you know, intersectionality and so on too, to, to, to say, well, these people have had a rougher time historically, they come from a marginalized background, uh, and so these people in this group here need to be um, sort of picked up and moved en masse to this spot uh, to, to rectify historical wrongs, essentially. And it doesn't matter if the individuals involved were, you know, are impacted, were impacted adversely by whatever that historical thing was, whether they, you know, it doesn't, they don't care about the individuals. It's, it's, it's all viewed as a group uh, dynamic. And so it's actually a very pernicious idea. So to, to pass that off as equality is disingenuous. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand that those words, uh, I mean, equity is essentially a, you know, it's a, it's a so socialist concept too. And then if you look at inclusion, well, uh, what does that mean exactly? 
just to give you a, a practical example, um, there's a, a debate going on in the world, as most of us know, about whether the definition of women should include people who were actually born male, but have transitioned to female. Mm -hmm. And, you know, does that, should they be included in everything from women's sports to women's prisons to women's rape shelters? Um, You know, so if we are uh, all mandated to advance this idea of inclusion, well, what happens if one of our clients or or ourselves are on the uh, you know, on the other side of that question, if are we as lawyers not able to defend somebody who is accused of being of not being inclusive? Uh, do we all have to push forward these ideas wherever they may lead, however they 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 might not fit with our own views of the world? So that's another concept. And then um, and then diversity. Well, what do they mean by diversity? Uh, look, I don't think anybody really has a hard time with the general concept. It's a it's a multicultural country. We have, we all, I'm sure most of us have friends and even family from all walks of life and backgrounds. It's a lovely thing, but they don't really just sort of mean diversity. Um, they, they, what they actually mean is uniformity. It's really quite Orwellian. They mean mm-hmm. we only want people who uh, who are like us, who think like us. And it, bonus points if they if they come from a different ethnic background, but but they have to think like us or they're not really part of our definition of diversity. So a board of directors that is all black women, for example, would be considered diverse under that definition, provided they're all they're all progressive. As lawyers, we shouldn't have to be subscribing to what what are extremely progressive leftist. Um, I, don't, I don't even call them progressive. I think they're regressive mm. concepts, but that's what we were expected to do. So, you know, I have to be honest, Barry, I was not someone who talked about politics all the time. I've always been able to entertain entertain all sides of an argument. So I've never been confident that I was right about anything because I could always see the other side mm-hmm. and I would engage, you know, I'd, I'd consider all the angles and I, and I really just, I didn't kind of come out forcefully on any particular thing until that point. And I thought, okay, this is wrong. And I'm in a position where I can do something about it. I'm coming out of a hi- hiatus. I don't have a viable practice. I don't have staff who are depending on me. If I get canceled, okay, fine. I'll go do something else. I mean, I'm not that committed to it. I am now, but I mean, at that point, I, I really wasn't. So, so I started speaking out about it locally, and then uh, other lawyers kind of, you know, reached out and we got uh, talking and put up a website. We called it uh, Stop Sop, which was to stop the statement of principles. Uh, kind of a corny name, but it actually became a bit of a, a rallying point, ultimately, mm-hmm. and, a, and a bit of a movement. So we tried to get other lawyers to, uh, to to publicly stand with us, and some did, many did. I, I think you may have been on that list in the early I was days. on the list, yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot were, were nervous about it and, and yeah. wanted to be anonymous, uh, sent private emails saying, look, I support you, but I can't speak out about it. There's a culture in my firm that's yeah. that's just so doctrinal, so dogmatic about this. I can't I can't uh, rock the boat. Um, anyway, we didn't get enough lawyers to really kind of push back on the thing um, in a meaningful way at that stage. So we decided, look, let's try and, and run some candidates in the next election, the, the next election to govern the, the, the law society. Uh, it's called the, it's called, for your listeners, it's called convocation. It's the, it's the governing body and, uh, and the, the individual members are called benchers. So we put together a slate of candidates and started with the list of people who had initially uh, joined us. And 
we we put forward 22 lawyers and one paralegal. That was all we could come up with. Um, they were very brave people to be able to step forward and rock the boat that way. And uh, we, I think, did a pretty good campaign. And, and um, to, much to my surprise and delight, we discovered the morning the votes were tallied. This was all done electronically from the privacy of lawyers' own offices. So nobody had to know how they voted. But all 22 of our lawyers took top votes in that election and now sit as ventures in convocation. So, uh, so that was a pretty important um, step in the culture war because it yeah. just showed people and it became a bit of an example beyond our borders, too, and, and people in America and, and even Europe um, expressing interest in that because so many of our institutions have been have been effectively taken over by this ideology. And, and here was a, a roadmap to how you could kind of push them out. The battle's not over. Uh, it wasn't a majority. So they have to fight like anything in that in that space to stand for those small L classical liberal values um, that they're, you know, for the most part promoting there. And, you know, so it's it's not easy. It's not easy, but it was a step in that right direction. And and uh, and that kind of got me into the freedom space. Right on. You know, I really uh, want to thank you on behalf of all of us who certainly supported that campaign for the great work you did in organizing it. In many ways, I, I think it's just so ironic that you just coming out of um, an extended period of time not practicing law and now you're jumping in and you've really shook up the entire legal establishment by by this campaign. The irony is just phenomenal. And then when you think of all of these other large law firms and so forth, I remember at the time when uh, the election results were published, there were a number of lawyers who saying there's a bunch of right-wing fanatics have taken over the law society and all the rest of it. And doomsday has arrived for the... Uh, legal profession. And if anyone has followed the debates and the discussions and all that's going on, the Law Society is still doing very well. They're still collecting our fees and they're doing just fine. Uh, but now we're getting an opportunity for people who have a different point of view than what has been the standard view for decades, if not longer, um, now we have an opportunity to have real debates now. Now it's uh, people are sitting at the table who have a different point of view than than this uh, so-called progressive or, as you say, regressive uh, point of view. It's extremely important, it seems to me, that professions really begin to open up the doors and allow true diversity of opinion uh, to come out because we have seen over even just in this last two-year period, where our colleagues who are the medical professionals are not allowing any debate. And you're very much involved in that discussion as well. You're representing clients. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there with your practice? After I uh, finished with the with the stop stopping, I decided I would start my own law firm. And mm -hmm. uh, I called it Libertus Law, which is, um, Libertus is, a, is the Latin name for the uh, the Roman goddess of freedom. So, uh, you know, going with the theme, <laughs> I didn't do a whole lot with it until, you know, uh, initially, I think I had a couple of clients. It was a little, a little nerve wracking to start back in after such a long hiatus. I, I thought I had, I was a good lawyer before and I thought, well, I'll figure it out again. It was, mm -hmm. it's daunting, but, but, but I, I'm okay. But then I contacted a lawyer at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms that I had connected with through the stop stop thing. And I said, listen, uh, I'm starting this new practice. I'm happy to help you uh, pro bono if you need me, if you need a lawyer in Ontario. 
And that month I was hired. So I went full time into the Justice Center and I was there uh, for two years and I had a, a very nice time there working on some, oh, I don't know, I think they're very important cases. All the cases that are selected have some importance to the freedom cause. And uh, uh, so, and I'm still continuing to work with them, although I, um, after uh, a stint as interim president of the organization last summer, I decided it was, I was going to go back to just doing my own thing. So since September, I have been back to Libertas Law doing my own work. And I'm so I'm still doing a lot of the same sort of thing. And um, there's the culture war types of files, but but then there's also these vaccine mandates. And of course, it was lockdowns before that. And we were um, very much in the questioning, especially after it went on for a bit. I wrote a piece at the end of March um, cautioning that this idea of sort of flipping a switch on and off uh, on our society was potentially extremely destructive and uh, ought not to go on any longer than absolutely necessary, which mm. I thought, I think yeah, two weeks was, was frightening enough. Yeah, um, really. Two years is another, is another whole thing. So, uh, so I was involved in a lot of cases uh, on, on lockdown questions. We have actually one going to a hearing in a, in a couple of weeks uh, for a couple of churches that continued to open and had a number of, not just fines, but they were actually the government got an order against them that they were they must follow all measures that were in place, and if they didn't, they'd be in contempt of this court order. So then they had contempt proceedings, and and uh, now we're going to a hearing to to ask the question of whether the, that those orders were constitutional in the first place. It doesn't change the fact that they were found in contempt of them, but at least it'll it's an opportunity for us to to question whether those restrictions were constitutional. When the vaccine mandates were even just a just an idea, we were speaking out about that. I had written a piece in April of, of last year uh, for the Epoch Times saying, look, you know, vaccine mandates do not make any sense. Um, this, the, the, the vaccine companies were not proposing that they would stop transmission. They're, they were there to provide uh, a reduction in symptoms for, and particularly for those who are most vulnerable. Right. which was really where our focus should have been throughout was on how do we protect our most vulnerable? And I said right. that right from March of 2020, I, I, even before the Great Barrington Declaration was a thing. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it made sense to me. We could already see at that point that it was affecting mainly the elderly. So how do we protect right. our elders? And we didn't do that. So one of the files that I worked on in the summer of 2020 was um, was actually related to long-term care because, because we had we just done everything wrong. Our government had just done everything wrong. And um, mm-hmm. you know, locking the seniors up and not letting anybody have access to them was, was just as damaging as, as everything else they did because the courts immediately shut down. And I thought, well, that is alarming. Why are the courts shutting down? To shut down completely with the exception that you could come and make your plea for urgency. Now, there were certain cases that would be deemed to be more urgent. And here in Ontario, there was a list of them, which included things like the government coming and getting an order to say that an organization or a business, they needed to get an injunction to stop them from breaching the rules. So that was something you get into court for very quickly. But to challenge the constitutionality of all these measures, no, you had to jump through an extra hoop to get there. And I thought that was concerning that it wasn't even given a nod as a potential kind of case that might even attract that uh, the discussion of whether it should get into court. All of that has gone on. I mean, those kinds of cases have continued. Um, uh, the, the With respect to the doctors, um, they were delivered a message very early on by their colleges that 
look, we all have to get behind the public health measures and anybody who's essentially speaking out against that is liable to be disciplined. I, I don't know that doctors as a group are necessarily people who want to jump outside the box. I mean, it's the nature of that kind of a career is that you are very much you're in school for a very long period of time. You know, you're 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 following all the rules to get to that point. You're getting your good grades. You're you're behaving. You're you're doing all the right things if you want to have a career like that. So it is probably not the kind of career that encourages people who are exceptionally brave or outside the box thinkers. Not to disparage, you know, the doctors, but it just it doesn't seem like there were a whole lot who really wanted to rock the boat. And those that did or did so by accident or on purpose were quickly dealt with. And um, so, you know, it's it's been very hard to get balanced opinions out. Um, you know, even the Great Barrington Declaration, which came out, I think, in October of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to check for sure. But, you know, there were some very high profile, uh, highly regarded experts in the field who were behind that. And they were immediately treated as though they were completely fringe. And uh, and that was worrisome because, you know, you need to have a variety of opinions out there in order to get the best one. In order There's to try to find out what the truth of the matter is. I feel many times that we're kind of living in a moment of Galileo. The earth is the earth going around the sun or is the sun going around the earth? You know, what is the truth of this matter with the vaccine? And it strikes me that if you're not going to allow open discussion, we could easily be all going over the cliff together. And as we're now finding out, there's a lot of a lot of that happening with respect to everyone expecting the vaccines to do the job. And yet people are now all getting Omicron. And yet we still get the same pressure being put forward. You must all be vaccinated. One of the things that really uh, I find striking is that we had our own prime minister say, if we could only get to 70% vaccinated, then we would be able to go normal. And what I found fascinating with that Everyone was saying at the time, that was crazy. How can you get 70% vac? No one ever gets 70% vaccinated. When we have the flu shots and so forth, there's a very, very few percentage of people will get the flu shot. And now you're going to say you're going to get 70% vaccinated? Now we're somewhere into the 80s and we're still not there enough. And the president of the United States said last week that he wants the entire population of the United States vaccinated, but not even with that is he satisfied. The entire world, 7 billion people are to be vaccinated, he said. I mean, where does this ever stop? And and what's happening here that we can't seem to, to allow those other experts who know a lot more about medicine than I certainly do, how is it that they can't have a voice and say, hold on now, this is just utter madness. We're going to end up creating a, such, uh, a pathogen that's going to be resistant to all the vaccines, which may be even a greater monster uh, that we may be creating. So I'm listening to the debate, trying to find out the truth of the matter. You're dealing with it here in the courts, and it's, um, it's just frightening. It is frightening. Um, you know, and there's a, a few theories as to how we've gotten to this place. I mean, for one thing, we have had essentially a post-truth society evolving here. Um, I mean, it struck me pretty early on how political this became. Uh, that was solidified in June of 2020. I was already thinking this way, but when I saw uh, about 1,200 public health 
officials in the United States sign an open letter saying that the Black Lives Matter protests were a public health matter that, you know, it warranted going out and violating all of the uh, restrictions that they had been putting on everybody else for, for months. But it was OK to have these protests because that because, um, you know, that was uh, a public health issue too. racism was a public health issue. OK, well, whether it is or it isn't, um, y- they just completely showed their hand that, that this was all political, essentially, and that, um, you know, that the restrictions really were only going to be applied in certain directions. And I, and I started to experience that, too, over the over the two years in terms of which clients were, were more aggressively targeted for ticketing and, um, you know, for, for these sorts of orders that required them to comply when I, I realized that, that public health was 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 quite political, and I think that really set my perspective in in stone a little bit, um, I, I began to realize that what we were now promoting wasn't science. It wasn't small small s science, which is a method. It isn't a thing. It isn't a it isn't a, a place you arrive at. It is a constant process. It's a tool for coming to the, some something closer to the truth. Uh, it is it's a way of challenging ideas, actually, and, and it doesn't work if you don't challenge ideas. And so scientists are are trained or they should be if they weren't growing up in the world that we're in right now. They should be trained to look at every single thing critically and, and you know, ask big questions and look to patterns that don't fit and figure out why and hypothesize and, and come at things in different ways. And stand on the shoulders of those before them, but don't worship those people because, you know, the idea is you, you're going to look for the flaws in, in what's come before you and, and try to do better. So that's what science is. When you have somebody like Anthony Fauci stand up and say, I am the science, we've actually gone back to being pre-modern. We oh, forget yes. the enlightenment now. We're back to pre-modern. We're now religiously worshiping science. And and this this is the edict that's coming down from the, you know, this is the text um, Fauci puts his, you know, his commandments on the tablets effectively. And, um, you know, um, and we're everyone's supposed to follow them. So, you know, it's it it really has become almost a sort of a, a, a religion. And so uh, but it, it it comes it didn't happen just with COVID because the society that led to the stops up um, with the statement of principles requirements and all those things. That, that's been a progression over uh, many decades. And a lot of people have now grown up, uh, at least a full generation uh, or two now, have, have grown up almost entirely immersed in what is um, essentially an ideology that is, is very anti-enlightenment, um, anti-science in the sense that, that they're, they're not allowed to engage in critical inquiry anymore. They talk about critical theory as though critical actually means critical. It doesn't. There's another word that doesn't mean what it says it's supposed to mean. Um, they're, they're, they're basically teaching people now that you can only think this one way. Mm-hmm. And that is what critical theory is. Critical social justice is teaching you that everything um, has to be looked at through this very ideological lens and uh, whatever doesn't fit needs to be canceled, if for want of a better word. It's also, if I may, just emphasizing constantly the issue of power, right? So, I mean, you're critical only to the extent that you're saying the reason why those people are in power has to do with their various identity, race, so forth. The issue now of being critical is simply we're critical of the power because we want that power to impose our own view just the way you are imposing your view. That's kind of how I understand what they're trying to do. It is it is a power struggle. That's what it is. Um, Which makes them very cynical then. 
Oh, if I could remember the quote, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but Bertrand Russell had a quote that said something like, um, uh, people seem good while they are oppressed, but uh, in, in reality, they are only seeking to be the oppressor rather than the victim. You certainly see that uh, playing out. So, so we have uh, a society that's already grown up now not being critical thinkers, okay? And, and, and so that, that is part of how we got where we are. There's a lot of other uh, factors as well. I think people are very disconnected from communities now. I listened to a, a scholar uh, by the name of Matthias Desmond. I listened to him several months ago and I thought that makes a lot of sense. He's, uh, he was speaking of a concept called mass formation. Essentially, if you've got certain preconditions in your society, which we clearly do have, Um, You can end up with people becoming almost hypnotized. Our governments used a lot of fear uh, to to get people to cooperate. Uh, So we were not given proper data on which to to do risk assessments for ourselves that uh, would have calmed most of us down um, and let us put our our resources and efforts where it was most effective. Um, There was, whether deliberate or not, we were misled. And I think it was deliberate because... uh, you know, there's been some some work out of the uh, UK, a book called The State of Fear by, I think her name is Laura Dodds. Dodds? State of Fear is the name of the book anyway. Okay. She's, she's written about um, the use of behavioral psychology. And there was a committee that was formed in the UK comprised of, of behavioral psychologists who use techniques on the, the UK public to get them to comply. And at some point, some of them had misgivings about it. Like they, they recognized that this was becoming unethical. And this is becoming uh, the science of a Soviet Russia. Exactly. And, and listen, um, this is not the first time this kind of thing has been done. You know, you look back in, um, in the 1930s Germany and Hitler was mm. very skilled at propaganda and using behavioral psychology on people and, uh, you know, to, to obviously horrible effect. I mean, I'm not, totally comparing the two, but you have to be on guard about these things because they can really, you know, they can really cause a lot of destruction and they have uh, because people are so fearful now they can't get out of it. And then when we have uh, our own military, apparently been engaged in some kind of psychological experiments on the Canadian public. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't uh, rise the ire of critical thinking people, I don't know what would. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very much the case. And so, and, but, but people haven't got the, um, they haven't got the skills and the uh, resources to withstand a lot of this stuff. We're all very fairly isolated, and you're obviously the, the the measures that have been imposed have been isolated us even more. If we could have all just gotten together more in the first months, I think we would have had conversations that said, "Hey, you know, uh, boy, this, this isn't so. This isn't quite the pandemic that." they described it to be, you know, other people would share their experiences, right? And instead, we're all in our, our little bubbles and uh, and not, and that increases the fear because now you're worried about going near somebody and the masks have, have, have contributed to that. Um, just the, the psychological damage that has been done to our Western societies is just, uh, it's going to be generations, I think, before we we recover from it. Uh, the kids have been, have been so, so mm-hmm. badly treated. Absolutely. Another factor that I think is interesting that plays in, so there's, so there's the mass formation concept, and I'm sure some of your listeners will have heard about it by, uh, by now, but this is how totalitarian societies can take root because they're from the masses that, that they arise and from people who have been, uh, who have got generalized anxiety, which I think our society has much of. Society, uh, anxiety that's not attributable to a particular cause, but is just kind of a general feeling of anxiety, which is actually soothed by having now this COVID thing to focus on. So they feel better. 
those folks feel better and they want to kind of keep it going because they feel good having now this, we're all in it together. And, and, and I've got this focus from now for my anxiety. They don't recognize it in their, in their moment that they're in it, but, and then also just the fact that we're so disconnected and don't have communities. And I do think that's why religious communities have, have weathered this better because they continued to meet, they continued to have, um, to have their feelings of community. And so they they were able to, I think, withstand some of that um, mass formation in, in many ways. But the other thing that I, I've recently um, come across, and I think this also resonates, uh, Thomas Sowell has written The Vision of the Anointed, um, which is this idea that our sort of expert class views themselves as being the keepers of the right knowledge. You know, they're the ones that have the grand plans, the ideas on how to fix everything. And, mm. and, and so their grand plan was to deal with, was to eradicate COVID in this instance. And uh, if it doesn't work, it's either because people are too stupid to follow it, or there's evil on the other side that's undermining it, or we just need to kind of double down and do it more, right? Because it's no—it's not that the plan was the fault. We need more of the plan um, if, if, it, if it isn't solving the problem. And that's, we've certainly seen our laptop class be completely unwilling to consider any other opinions. They have con, you know, determined that they are correct on this. Um, but Sola is highly critical of these people. And uh, you know they're not necessarily the ones with the best ideas. And there's another um, concept that ties into this, and that is the wisdom of the crowds. And there's a book about that as well. One of the benefits of having open discourse and free free communication and not shutting people down is that from the masses, you carry forward historical knowledge, things that your grandma used to say to do for, for handling colds or, or other ideas that, that, that get passed along. How to, how to live healthy lives and so on. We, we learn about all that. And, and then we also, in our little interactions in crowds, we, we try different things and we communicate different ideas. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But, you know, if, if each country in the world had done its own thing with this, now, it wouldn't have all followed this grand plan, but we would have been able to see what worked and what didn't work. Yeah, that's right. And instead, we've we've all followed the same grand plan. And if it's... and the. The thing is, if it's if it's dispersed through a whole group of society, if there's a mistake, if it doesn't work out well, if it you know it, the damage is limited to those people who tried that thing. Right. But when you put, impose the top-down grand plan on everybody, now if it doesn't work, we're all over the cliff, as you said. Yeah. So I think that's unfortunately what has happened, and there and the egos are too big, and the mass formation is too strong, and yes. you know and and. Uh, and the, you know, sort of um, the, the consequences and costs to those people who are doing this to us haven't been great enough. They've been born mostly by the people not getting to make the choices. And as a result, we seem, can't seem to extricate ourselves from this. So, yeah, you know, uh, and you mentioned Thomas Sowell, and he often mentions about the fact that bureaucracies are totally unaccountable. And when we get the unaccountable bureaucracies making these decisions, bad things happen because there is no one who's going to suffer the consequences of the bad decision. In other words, these same bad players get to make more bad decisions as time goes on. He showed that over and over throughout his entire career with the policies that were made in the inner cities in New York, for example. Mm -hmm. He pointed out that um, as he was growing up as a black person in the inner city in New York, he had tons of opportunity, but because the white people wanted to come in and fix the problems in the black communities, he points out that they've only exacerbated 
the issues and made it much worse for the young people growing up there now. And so now these same kinds of principles are being played out here now in this uh, pandemic. I want to just pop back to the point you you mentioned about you've noticed that some clients are being picked on. What I think I started to notice it, uh, of course, with the some of the, my church clients, and um, you know, because at the Justice Center we defended the the fundamental freedoms of the Charter, and that included religious freedom. And so we, of course, had a lot of uh, religious leaders reaching out to us, especially as they started to get ticketed for um, um, for holding their gatherings or for holding gatherings that weren't perfectly in compliance. I mean, I know I, I think that most of them. Virtually everybody was in compliance, at least they tried to be. I had one client in particular, um, which was a, a church in Elmer, Ontario, who's become quite notorious, uh, where back in the spring of 2020, they were doing everything absolutely right. They, were, they weren't even meeting at all. Now, this is, a, this is a congregation that has, it's non-denominational, but has a lot of people from a Mennonite background. Um, their church is extremely important to their way of life. It's not purely a Sunday thing. It's, um, you know, it's, it is, uh, it's fundamental to all aspects of their lives. Their children are raised in it. They marry within it. Um, you know, they wear distinctive clothing that identifies them as part of it. So they did try to cooperate, but then, um, for Easter of 2020, they had heard about a, a church in Saskatchewan that had done a drive-in service and the justice center had gotten involved. There was a demand letter that was sent that facilitated that, um, those drive-in services happening there. And so this church in Ontario decided it was going to try it too. And at first the police were very receptive to it, talked them through it, you know, that nobody got out of their cars, right? Everybody was sitting like it was a parking lot and the communications were coming through a shortwave radio, uh, broadcasting to the, like over their, over their car radios. Five people, which was the maximum outdoor gathering limit at the time, stood six feet apart on the stage to do the service. And so everything was perfect. Other than that, it was technically, according to the regulations, but possibly a gathering mm -hmm. and gatherings were not allowed. So, but the police had, had worked with them at first. Unfortunately, somebody in the community complained. And this is, this is what we also started to see happening a lot yeah. more was the the busybodies got out there and, and, and were tattling on people who they didn't feel were complying. So once there was a complaint that, oh, my goodness, there's cars in the parking lot, there must be something happening there, then the police tone changed. And then they got very aggressive with this church. And it turned into, um, you know, a, a battle of egos. Uh, well, I won't even say that. It was really only the one ego uh, of the police chief in, in that town who was determined he was going to shut these guys down. And so I sued them with, you know, the Justice Center sued them. It was my file. And uh, within days, I sued the Elmer police and I also sued the uh, provincial government. Within days, the regulations were amended to explicitly permit drive-in services. But these people continued to become a target in the community. And, uh, and, the, and the police were out all the time. And, and you know, as, as things evolved... Uh, and they got targeted more and more, the pastor became a bit of a, uh, a spokesperson for, for freedom, uh, in effect, for, you know, he would go out to marches and protests and, uh, and became a bit of a, a celebrity, mini celebrity. And, you know, he had his own reasons for doing that in the sense that he was, he was bringing more people into the, into the faith and he was standing up for what he strongly believed in, but it made him even more of a target. And so the, they were having outdoor services. Again, the science did not suggest in any way that outdoor services were um, contributing to spread, but they still had police drones flying overhead and monitoring their services. And uh, it, it's almost like a movie set, right? I mean, like this is the dystopian thing you would see produced out of Hollywood. I mean, it's incredible when we look back on it. And because I remember that very clearly. And it just, 
even then it was kind of outrageous. Well, but, but you just sort of compare that to other things that were going on. So during the time when churches were restricted and uh, my clients were being charged regularly or facing contempt proceedings for not complying, other things were getting a pass. And so I mentioned the Black Lives Matter protest, but even later there was a group of Palestinians who were protesting in Toronto. Uh, and by the way, I don't I, I don't um, suggest for a moment that they shouldn't have been able to protest or that their cause isn't good. Uh, but I'm just saying when there's a double standard, that's that's where I have an issue. with. Yeah, there should be some equality here, I think. Right. Real equality. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, I, you know, I think that uh, our, our fundamental right to be able to to peacefully assemble is such an important thing in, in our in a democracy, because, uh, you know, you need to get all those voices out there. It's a pressure valve, uh, pressure yes. release thing as well. So, so if you got sort of the 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 mob or the the majority who has uh, decided that things are going to be a certain way, and there's a disenfranchised minority of people who are feeling like their rights are being infringed upon, well, letting them protest is a way for them to at least express themselves, and it might stave off more uh, aggressive things but by shutting them down um you know i think that's i think that's a very dangerous very dangerous thing to do i mean there were lockdown protests and so on that happened too but they tended to be charged more and there was also the other sort of thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was when there was um a disaster in london in my in my city here with a family that had been hit by a vehicle um, which was at least I'm going to say the word alleged because that's how we used to do criminal law uh, was we would allege things and um, until they were proven in court. Um, but at the moment now we don't we don't just say alleged anymore. We jump right to the conclusion that something is in fact a hate crime and uh, before it's tried in court. So uh, our prime minister and all of our political leaders decided that they wanted to come and show support for this family that had been the victim of a hate crime. I have no objection to people showing that support. But what they did was they temporarily lifted restrictions for that gathering to happen while other people couldn't have funeral gatherings. Now, there was 10,000 people, by the way, that congregated in London wow. for that service. And uh, you couldn't get, uh, you know, your if, you, if your father died over the preceding couple of years, you couldn't probably have a, a funeral for him. Um, but this one was okay. So it was that double standard, right? And certain certain groups got a pass and certain ones did not. So our prime minister and his, uh, his little diatribe against the unvaxxed <laughs> Uh, recently, I would say sounded an awful lot like hate speech, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The prime minister is determined he's going to stop misinformation and hate speech and all this sort of stuff yeah. while speaking in a hateful way and, you know, promulgating misinformation himself, I would say. A, a lot of the misinformation that we're hearing from about COVID stuff is coming from official sources. Misinformation or misleading information or incomplete information that we should reasonably have, all of that, I think, has been a, a, an official problem. Is there misinformation on the other side? Oh, absolutely. But would it be less likely to be there if we were getting full and frank and reasonable disclosure on all of the things from the government? Probably not as much, but you can't massage things in the direction that you want to go if you are fully um, presenting all of the evidence, I guess. Um, vilification and detestation are the, um, the new standards that they're proposing to define hate speech. Does it go beyond mere criticism to vilification and detestation? Well, what were his words? They were racist, misogynist. And as a leader, we have to make a decision. Um, how do we tolerate these people? Mm -hmm. How do we tolerate these people? 
supposedly there's something also about them taking up space. Yes, yes, he did mention that, that they were taking up space. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, could that be considered hate speech under the new uh, definition? Uh, you know, very, very likely. But is, is he going to come suffering consequences for that? Uh, probably not. And so it's interesting that he says, do we tolerate? Because this is what I wanted to touch on to explain why, perhaps, was one explanation that I've come across that resonates for me as to why things are applied one way and not another. Mm. And again, it ties into all of the things we've just talked about. It's not just the lockdown stuff. It's all the other stuff, too. It's also the the way we were treated with the Stop Sop campaign, you know, that Mm -hmm. we were immediately vilified as being horrible right-wingers. And when we had won and put forward a candidate to be the treasurer or the basically the chair of the of the the board, right. which was a little bit you know it was a little bit um, ballsy for want of a better word of us to do that with a with a brand new slate of candidates who'd never sat there before. Usually, you don't go right to being the leader, but we put forward a candidate for the first treasurer election who happened to be a woman from um, who was born in Hong Kong. So had she won, she would have been the very first elected female uh, Asian treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario. Which one would have thought that uh, with all of the die people that uh, this would be wonderful. One would have thought, but she wasn't the right kind of right. She didn't have the right, right mindset. Right. And so there was a hit piece taken out with the Globe and Mail about her and about who some of her clients that she'd represented in the past, because that, you know, again, lawyers can't represent certain clients anymore because they are them effectively. So, again, another norm that has gone out the window. We never used to say that just because a lawyer defended drunk drivers that he must be a drunk driver, too. Yeah. Um, but if you defend somebody's freedom of speech, well, you you are now adopting, in effect, um, all the things that they've said, whether you agree with them or not. All of that is part of a piece. And I um, have gotten to know a little bit a fellow by the name of James Lindsay, uh, who's Mm. got some notoriety now as well for his work, actually published a piece. uh, It was a speech that I gave on his website. It's called New Discourses. And I'll give you the link for that later, too. Um, But he's done a deep dive into the roots of all of this. And one of the things that he's unearthed is a paper by Herbert Marcuse from, I think, 1969, Mm. Um, that talks about repressive tolerance. And he will do it better justice to this explanation. And there's plenty of podcasts that he's done about this and things he's written. But in a nutshell, and and this, by the way, is one of the leading kind of um, regressive thinkers from from the 60s that has, that thinking has infiltrated most of the sort of humanities and the the critical, the critical theory stuff that we're seeing that that is that is impacting all of us in our institutions has roots in this kind of thinking. And the thinking is this, that in order to have our liberated society, in order to have a tolerant society, we must be intolerant of the people who are not in our space. So we will only be tolerant of the hard, far left people who share our views of of liberation and anybody to the right of that, which is pretty much everybody, they their views should not be tolerated. And so interestingly, when Trudeau came out with his um, bill on hate speech, there was an organization in Canada called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. And they produced a piece that said, we finally know what might be in Canada's new anti-hate law. And what they said was, now you got to listen carefully to this, hate speech is an attack on free speech. Removing hate will make it more possible for women, BIPOC, 
to us LGBTQ plus persons, et cetera, to exercise their charter rights to expression and fully participate in society. So in other words, in order for us to have free speech, you can't have it, okay? And because of course, anything, they, they are of the view that anything that isn't in their line of thinking is gonna be hate speech or labeled as such, whether it deserves the label or not. So in order for us to be free, in order for us to have our liberated society in, in the way that we want, we have to be intolerant of everybody else. So that is in part, I think, or at least probably in large part, why we're seeing such a double standard uh, that comes out of our institutions. Because most of these institutions now have been taken over by people who've grown up in this, who've learned all this in school. Um, our, our public schools are filled with it now and our universities are filled with it. They're all just um, die machines as, as Jordan Peterson would, would use the acronym. Uh, they're, producing, they're producing generations of people who, who think and agree with this. And anybody who would have a counter opinion has not been allowed to express it. So, so that's how we can be critical of the churches, but perhaps not other religious organizations. That's how we can be critical of people who want to campaign against lockdowns or mandates, but not against people who uh, would say very hateful things um, against those people. You can actually um, be very critical of healthcare professionals who are standing up for their the rights of their patients to have choice, medical choice, or who themselves don't want to take the vaccine, that's okay. But if you are critical of, you know, critical of the doctors who are pushing all of this on everybody, um, then you might find yourself running afoul of that, that legislation. Not just critical, I mean, it, it's, it's to a higher level of, of intimidation, but it goes one way and it it's going to continue to go one way for a long time. Right. And so basically what I'm hearing from you, Lisa, is that we've got something that there is a it's it's a zeitgeist, right? It's the it's the times in which we live. The mindset of our time right. has made uh, the statement of principles that you dealt with, the struggle with the law society, as well as the struggle now with the vaccine mandates, the lockdowns uh, attacking the churches in particular uh, that would dare stand up kind of like the tall poppy syndrome. You just cut them down. And I'm also interested in the legal revolution against the accommodation of religion is how I've phrased it. But it's this idea that we're living within the legal profession right now, even in the courts, as we saw with the Trinity Western University Law School case, that you can have, as it was in that situation, uh, an institution that has constitutional rights, and yet they would be totally disregarded because they didn't fit the narrative as you explained it. Like, I mean, we're going to be intolerant of those who are not in our space. And here we see, it seems to me, that the Supreme Court has taken uh, the mindset of Marcuse and just simply have now made it um, applicable. And the struggle I have, and speaking with some uh, lawyers recently, they told me of a situation, they appeared before a judge and the judge said, well, look, uh, yeah, you've got this client here dealing with these vaccine mandates, but understand that the court is not interested in litigating on the issue of vaccine mandates because we're not going to be arbiters of science in essence. How can a court be a court unless it's going to listen to the both sides and then come down on it? We, we do it with education. We do it with uh, business. We do it with the stock market. The courts are very well versed when it comes to contract and all the rest of it, but yet they're not economists. They're not business people. They're, they're lawyers sitting on the bench. 
And now we've had all kinds of cases historically dealing with the medical profession uh, with respect to all kinds of liability issues, insurance issues. And now suddenly when it comes to the vaccine matter, uh, we're not going to uh, be dealing with it. And and I find I find it very troubling, it seems to me, that the courts seem to be pushing things off down the road when it should be dealt with immediately. We've got students who are losing their uh, opportunity to get their degree uh, because they're not vaccinated. We've got individuals who are working out of their own homes and are losing their jobs because they're not being vaccinated and the courts are, are not in a rush to hear. What's your sense of this? And have you experienced this kind of thing that my friend shared with me? Yes. Uh, well, it has been a concern and uh, that prompted actually some colleagues and I to uh, put something together we called the Free North Declaration, where we invited lawyers and the general populace to express concerns about how, um, you know, so many of our norms are being thrown out the window and our charter rights were not being respected at all. Um, one of the problems with writing them down and, and then putting a loophole in is that uh, it's very easy to dismiss them. And, and fundamentally, Barry, we have a cultural problem. And, uh, you know, it's that you write that the word zeitgeist is applicable. Our zeitgeist right now is we're very pro-state. Um, we've we've raised people to, uh, for generations, as we talked about, to view the world a certain way. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of freedom, I think, is, is perhaps um, frightening uh, to people. And also as Canadians, I think we also have a sort of natural tendency to define ourselves as opposite to the Americans. And so they have this notion of messy freedom down there that we're far too polite for. So, so you certainly see a lot in the last while of, um, of people saying, well, anybody who, is, who wants freedom is, is selfish. Well, they forget that freedom also comes with responsibility, personal responsibility. And, and I think people who, who love freedom also want to take personal responsibility. And that means you decide uh, for your own family what your, um, what your risks are and you, and you look after people around you. I don't think that people are trying to cause harm to anybody else by wanting to uphold mm. those principles of freedom. But there's a cultural distaste for it now. And so that, of course, spreads up the chain to the um, to the political sphere and, and, and to the legal sphere. And so the courts themselves are not immune. They live in this community, too. They live in this culture. They are not upholding charter freedoms. The way that when it was first birthed in the you know, 80s, of course, the, the, the approach was to be as expansive, I think, as, as, as possible with, mm -hmm. with it. And, um, and, and now we're seeing it's almost being used... It's like it's like some, some people have gotten all they could out of it now, out of the charter, and now it's going to be used as a sword against other people and not as a shield anymore to protect from the state. The state's going to use it against people somehow. And you see that with Trinity Western was a shocking example of that. The university, which was the private player, which should have had the protection of the charter, was actually held to um, to some some unwritten standards of charter, charter value. It's a made up thing that wasn't even in the text. And and. You know, um, and, and that was, I think, the first shocking, um, to me anyways, revelation that we were in a, a whole new constitutional era. And I think that what we're seeing with with the lockdowns is just sort of almost a continuation of, of that. It's all about Section 1 right now. Just to unpack that for our listeners, Section 1 is where the charter says you have these rights subject to 
uh, reasonable limits that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And so it's in that analysis of what are the justable limits that we find the courts basically imposing its their own law and their own views, and charter values was one of those which is not even in the charter. Right. And now with respect to the pandemic, they're giving the government very wide berth. The key words in that are demonstrably justified. Mm -hmm. And that to me suggests you need to put forward some compelling evidence. One of the things that I think has been misunderstood through a lot of this is this idea of a precautionary principle that we have to do what's safe because we don't, we can't wait for all the evidence to come in. We just have to do the safe thing. But we really turned that notion on its head because what we did was a different thing. The pandemic plans that were in existence prior to 20, uh, 2019 were, were certainly not suggesting that we would lock down for what is a moderate at best pandemic. I mean, we've had these before. When it all shakes out, we're going to find out that the numbers were not so significant. We were not talking, we're not talking about Spanish flu here. And when you start parsing out the with COVID of COVID analysis as well, and you look at all the uh, the other factors that drove up those numbers, such as, uh, especially in the US, they were paying, um, there was money, there was money in characterizing things as COVID as well. But we may not incent- get all of that. Incentivized. Yeah. To- yes, exactly. We may not get all of that out uh, fully in, in an acceptable way. Like the, uh, there may not be the full reckoning. In other words, that I would hope that there would be after all of this, at least not for a while. But in any event, um, the the lockdowns were the novel measure, and they were not without harm. And the catalog of harms that have come from lockdowns has has been growing since you know since the very beginning. People have been keeping tabs on all these things. The Justice Center did a number of reports, for example, on lockdown harms, but the courts have not wanted to consider that, and they have just wanted to to give the government deference, wide wide deference, to handle this once in a century pandemic. They call it. Um, And they're taking judicial notice of things that they shouldn't take judicial notice of. And I'll just explain that for your listeners as well. The idea is, you know, all decisions um, of the courts are to be made solely on the evidence in the court. So each party, you know, you're you're the applicant, you bring your evidence uh, to the court and it's tested on cross-examination and the other side has its evidence and, and the court has to, you know, decide where the where the truth lies, and often it's somewhere in between, but they do it based on the evidence um, put forward, sworn and, and put forward in, in the courtroom. They don't bring their own views, or they're not supposed to, their own idea of what the evidence is uh, from outside uh, of the courtroom. And they tell the juries that too, and they give jury instructions. You know, you're not supposed to decide a case based on what you read in the paper. You're supposed to decide it based on what you heard in the courtroom. Unfortunately, I don't think our judges are remembering that, a lot of them. And uh, so they're taking judicial notice of things they don't they don't expect evidence for um, about COVID that um, that are contestable issues that are that are issues that should be determined based on based on the evidence. And I had a, an example of that in the summer uh, last year. I was arguing um, against one of these statutory orders against a, a group of Mennonite churches. The uh, only evidence before the court, because this gets in very very quickly, the government can get into court immediately if it needs to, and so. I think we had you know a day or two notice for this statutory injunction request, and uh, and the, the the rules were about to change. So my clients had been in violation of the very limited number of people that could gather, but it was going to be increasing the following week to a level that was workable. 
And so I said, look, this, this isn't necessary. We're, you know, we're, we're going to be out of this regime very shortly. And the opposing council made submissions about, well, we have Delta, the Delta variant to be concerned about, and we really can't take any chances. And, and he went on and on about that. And I said, well, you know, Your Honor, you can't take judicial notice of the fact that of anything about Delta. We have no evidence about that before the court. We have a few um, affidavits from police officers saying that these church members had violated, you know, had been had more people than they were supposed to, and they weren't wearing masks. So that's the evidence before the court. The court, in its decision, said that I had um, encouraged the court not to take judicial notice of COVID-19. So essentially, I was a COVID denier, I guess. That wasn't, it wasn't my submission at all. <laughs> it's just like, let's be careful not to, you know, put too much. Anyway, that, you know, I think that's happening um, a fair bit. Here's what my fear is. Uh, Jordan Peterson, on a recent podcast, mentioned that he expects that the medical profession, when all of this is over, the medical profession is no longer going to be held in such high esteem by the public as a result of all of this uh, experience of uh, many different views and people not being within the medical profession, not even being allowed to be able to express their views. And I fear the same thing for the legal profession. I fear that the the judicial system itself is in part on trial here because here as you pointed out the government can come in right away but my student who is being dismissed out of the university is unable to get a court hearing until many many months down the road uh and yet their careers are being held uh in abeyance while everyone else is able to go and do their thing and i think there's going to be repercussions in the long term for even our own profession, because we have not taken our understanding of what justice is prior to the pandemic, the idea of being able to hear a matter in court at a recent reasonable time, et cetera, et cetera, uh, being able to have our constitutional rights being protected. We're not seeing that under this uh, experience right now. Many cases are are being filed in court, being put off to very long dates uh, in in like down the road kind of thing. And I think this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good for uh, for our society to have a uh, judicial system uh, and a legal system in and of itself, uh, not at all showing any curiosity into what is happening. Yeah, I think all of our institutions are are, are going to suffer a, a, a very uh, severe price. They have a, a fair amount of authority over our day to day lives, but they, they lose their legitimacy when they stop being fair and when they stop remembering the people that they are there to serve. You know, there's been a lot of disenfranchised people over this last two years who feel like there's nobody speaking for them. They feel like they're living in some um strange version of Canada they just don't recognize anymore. And the so-called elite, I guess, or professional managerial class, they're not really elite necessarily, but the the, the people who, who govern us in one way or another, whether they're our union leaders or, um, or, or you know, employers, uh, courts, institutions, uh, like the regulatory bodies, the law societies, the, the medical um, governing bodies, the colleges, and so on, all of them, for a society to be working and functional and, and stable, there has to be a certain respect for those institutions. But in order 
for there to be that respect, they have to respect the people that they govern and that they, you know, it has to, it has to go both ways. And as I've said before, in other uh, broadcasts, the, um, you know, the, the veneer of civilization is extremely thin and you can't be messing around with it the way that we have and expect that everything's just going to fall back in place. There will be repercussions. We have a lot of work to do to, to rebuild faith and, 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 uh, um, respect for the institutions or people are just going to, they're going to, they're going to go outside and they're going to do their own thing. We have uh, right now at this time that we're, we're speaking a huge convoy of truckers that is gathering across the country. And I've, and I just sort of half joked on, on Twitter by putting a, a quote from 1984 uh, about our hope lies in the proles, you know, um, <laughs> Really, it's the it's the disenfranchised average person who I hear from all the time. And I, you know, I, I have barely had any sleep, honestly, for, for two years trying to trying to help uh, these folks. And it's not been easy because it's not always possible to help them, frankly. And, and it's been very discouraging. But they're frustrated with the rest of the legal profession who won't return their calls, who's busy drafting documents that um, policies that are extremely draconian and unnecessary, frankly, on these mandates. Uh, who are refusing to bend, who are refusing to acknowledge the religious, reasonable relig religious exemptions, um, you know, the, the medical doctors who won't see them in person who, or, or when they do, they won't acknowledge that maybe they've got health conditions that, uh, that warrant an, an, an exemption uh, or at least some concern. Uh, all of that is being dismissed. And then, of course, the doctors are afraid of their colleges. And so they're, you know, I, I hope the doctors start rallying and, and getting people together to take over their governing bodies, too. But all of these things are just are hanging in the balance right now. And, and it could go very, very badly. And I don't think that our professional managerial class recognizes they get their legitimacy from the people that they govern. And if they can't, if they can't respect their rules and stay in their line, the whole thing's just going to fall apart, you know. Yep. Uh, I don't, I don't know where this country goes from here, but uh, it could go, it could go very badly and very quickly. And that's yes. uh, one of the things. It takes a long time to build a house, but a very short time to destroy it. And it seems to me that that is the lesson of history that we are simply ignorant of. In this part of the world, we have built up this country over the last several hundred years. And we have not had any major uh, destructive force that has really rattled the entire country. I mean, yes, we've participated in wars, but those wars were over in Europe and other parts in Korea and all the rest of it, Afghanistan. But we have not had any major crisis like what we are currently having. And it's going to be fascinating to see what will happen with government as they listen and watch and who knows how they're going to react to all of these truckers that are currently rolling. But it strikes to me that this is um, a sign of the frustration that the people in this country have endured over the last two years. I see we're running out of time here, but the faceless bureaucracy is something that I think people don't really realize the effect of it. I, I had a student contact me just last week. She is being unenrolled uh, this semester at the university there in Toronto. And she got this letter, a long letter, outlining the reasons as to why her religious exemption is not accepted. And at the bottom, it's not signed by a bureaucrat. It's just signed by the name of the university. And I, I, I just lift that up and I just say, you know, 
Isn't that just typical? Some bureaucrat hiding behind the name of the university does not even have the wherewithal to sign their name so they can be contacted. Instead, it's a general email account at the bottom that needs to be contacted to be able to respond to that letter. And it seems to me that is symbolic of this entire thing. The people who are making the decisions are there sitting behind the desk or probably at home, uh, sitting down with their laptop, writing what they figure is a wonderful, eloquent, articulate piece as to why the religious um, exemption is not being granted. And yet they're nothing but a faceless, uh, bureaucratic malaise that this country has been faced with. And people are getting tired of that kind of treatment and disrespect. Really, it's totally disrespectful. That's just me kind of spouting off there for a bit. <laughs> but anyhow. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree. And I've, I've dealt with a number of students. I've been trying. I, some successfully, I've managed to get them back into their program or, or avoid getting a uh, deregistered, but others not. And uh, it's very frustrating for those reasons. Uh, someone else is judging your the validity of your religious beliefs, which are, of course, a very personal thing. Yep. And, um, you know, I've got I've got students who have never had a vaccine in their lives based on their conscious conscientious beliefs. And uh, and that's been accepted all along. And, and um, now some somebody has decided that's not good enough. And mm. Uh, and who are they to decide, you know, what, how, how valid someone else's beliefs are. So yes, it's, it's, uh, we've got more problems than, than we know what to do with at the moment. And I, I certainly hope some, some new voices emerge from all of this, who, who um, understand the underpinnings of a, of why the West has been successful as long as we were. And, you know, because really this has been a blip of history yes. um, since the enlightenment, you know, we, we've lived through uh one of the things when I when I was homeschooling my kids, I think one of the things that's also brought me to where I am today was I I really made history the bat, the spine of what we did. It was it, and and we went back from um, from the beginning and we worked through chronologically and we saw the ebbs and flows and the you know how resilient humans are, but how destructive we are and. Um, and you see the cycles repeat and there's variations on the theme, but, you know, we're, by and large, we're the same across time and space. And you have to have an appreciation of that in order mm-hmm. to to really understand we're not divorced from all of that just because we think that we're, we, we've evolved. We, we still have we still have our, our very instinctual roots and we still have just our, our normal human tendencies that uh, anyway, the, the point is, I, I think that. Uh, if we don't have that appreciation, we just stumble blindly along and, and we forget that being serfs is our sort of normal way to be. And uh, uh, and having sort of elevated people who take advantage of us. And, well, we, we got away from that and we started to respect individuals for who they were, uh, you know, for what they wanted to do with their lives. They were allowed to kind of carve out their own direction uh, by and large, and and not be under the thumb of a tyrant. And it has been a wonderful thing, but somehow we've still managed to decide that this is oppressive. And yeah, you know, it's it, we're just we've really kicked the gift horse in the mouth, I guess, is is for the last number of decades. And uh, and now we're going to end up back in some horrible place again if we're not careful. So we really need people to be thinking: How do we restore the Enlightenment project? Can it be restored even? Um, you know, can can we undo the damage that we've done? It's just it's so 
It's so deep. And we're, and it's just, it's been on steroids over the last two years with, That's with COVID right. and, and uh, all of the, the, the preceding decades have led to this place in some ways where I find hope right now, because I do want to leave on a hopeful note yep. um, where I find some hope is that because things have escalated so quickly over the last two years, it's opened a lot of eyes that might not have been opened quite so quickly otherwise. And you do need the world shifts because of a few people on either end of the spectrum. It's, it's the vast majority of people just want to live their lives, raise their families, do their jobs, find meaning in their lives, you know, in, in, in their small way. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't want to be bothered with all the, the cultural issues. You know, they're just kind of being carried along by it. But when enough of them kind of recognize that things are sick in our society and that there's that there's problems and they start speaking up and they start forming convoys or they start doing things that are that that show their their strength, as long as it be, doesn't become, you know, violent or, or or reactionary. But as long as they kind of do things in a productive way, I, I really think there's 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 a great deal of hope to be found there. And I, and I hope that enough eyes have been opened up and that we can have some. And again, by opening up conversation to all the voices, we can find a better way forward and, and ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen to us again. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really want to thank you uh, for being one of those people who have stepped up and stood in the gap and helped people that many people would not have been helped otherwise. And so I just want to thank you for your willingness to stand up for freedom in, in all of this. And for those of you uh, who have been paying attention here today, we've talked about a lot of interesting things, but substantive things. And here at First Freedoms, we want to allow as open dialogue as possible. You may not agree with the opinions expressed on this program, but that's okay. That's the part of being involved in an open dialogue. And so until next time, I'm Barry Bussey, and thank you for watching Freedom Feature, brought to you by First Freedoms Foundation. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca